0: Please be aware that the stories, theories, reenactments, and language in this podcast are of an adult nature and can be very disturbing, frightening, and in some cases even offensive. Listener discretion is advised. Be warned, there is very adult content ahead. And, well, you have been warned. Welcome, welcome, heathens, to the wild and wonderful world of the weird and unexplained. I'm your host, Naughty Nicole Delacroix, and joining us later in the season will be my dearest friend and most fabulous of co-hosts, Brody Fay. Yes, I know my darling's illness has kept him from you today, but rest assured, he will be joining us soon, so send him all the light and love that you can for a quick recovery so that he will join us next time, because together we will be bringing you stories about the weird, wonderful, unexplained, eerie, scary, and downright unbelievable things in this world. That's right, there will be tales of ghosts, murder, supernatural beings, and unexplained mysteries. So, sit back, grab your favorite drink, and your blankie if you need it, relax, and prepare to be transported to today's Dark Enigma. On today's episode of Dark Enigma, we're going to be talking about the Love Pass incident. So, in honor of our topic today, I will be doing my very best Natasha impressions throughout the episode, and today's drink of choice will be ice-cold vodka. In addition, we have a little drinking game for those of you at home and with the ability of drinking. Every time I fuck up the pronunciation of a name, you take a shot of vodka. And every time I do my Natasha impression, which will be something like, go get Moose and squirrel, that's going to be a double shot. How's that for a drinking game? I know you lovelies will have fun, and so will I. Now, of course, if you're driving, no drinks for you. You can keep track, and you can catch up later when you're not driving, and you're at home, and don't have to go anywhere. All right, for today's story, we're going to take you to the frigid mountains of Russia. Our story is about the mysterious deaths of nine ski hikers in the northern Ural Mountains on February the 2nd of 1959, so step back into the Wayback Machine, because here we go. The group consisted of eight men and two women, most of which were students or graduates of Ural Polytechnical Institute. The goal of the 14-day expedition was to reach Mount Ortorton, located roughly 6 miles north of the site where the actual incident happened. The route was considered a Category 3 difficulty. For those of us that are not experienced with climbing, this is considered an extremely difficult climb requiring multiple days' hike to complete even for experienced climbers. So, not for the faint of heart! On that note, all the members were experienced in long ski tours and mountain expeditions. They were very familiar with the terrain and had completed many climbs with far more difficulty than this one. So what happened? Well, first, let's talk about our group. And those of you playing the drinking game at home, get your shots ready, because I'm about to fuck up some names. Our group consisted of the leader, who was Igor Alexeyevich Dyatlov, who was 23, Yuri Nikolaevich Doroshenko, who was 21, Ludmila Alexandrovna Dubnina, who was 20, and she was one of the first females, Yuri, who went by Grigori Alexeyevich Krovonishenko. Yeah, that's at least two shots by now. He was 23. Alexander Sergeyevich Kolevatov, who was 24. Zinadia Alexivna Kolmogorva, and she was the other female, she was 22. Rustem Vladimirovich Slobodin, who was 23. Nikolai Vladimirovich Tibor Yudin, who is 21. Yeah, I know. For those of you playing the drinking game at home, that was at least five or six shots. Eh, probably more like eight. But you know what? There's there's more game ahead. So pace yourself or water down the vodka because these names are seriously killing me. All right. We'll throw in a double shot for you. Go get Musen's Cuero. All right. There we go. All right. So our group arrived by train at Ivdel, a city at the center of the northern province of Svirdlowsk, Oblast in the western Siberian plain on January the 25th. They then took a truck to Vizhe, the last inhabited settlement to the north. They started their march toward Ort- Ortortin from Vizhe on January the 27th. The next day, Yuri Yudin, the one that was 21, was forced to go back due to illness, but the diaries and cameras that were found around the last camp did make it possible for them to track the group's route up to the day preceding the incident, which is how the incident has been recreated, well, at least to a point. The hike started out fairly late on February the 1st, and they only traveled about 2.5 miles that day. Excess gear and food were stored on a platform in the forest called Labaz, or Base Camp. Camp was then set up around 5 p.m. on a slope of Kolat Sakla, just 10 miles from Mount Ortorten. They had dinner around 6 or 7, and one of the two members of the group went outside to relieve themselves. Presumably, it was Simolyan Zolotorov and Nikolai Thibault Brignol, since they were found to have been better dressed than the others. But then, something went catastrophically wrong. Now, it has been agreed beforehand that Dyatlov would send a telegram to their sports club as soon as the group returned to Vizhe. It was expected that this would happen no later than February the 12th. But Dyatlov had told Yudin that he expected to be a bit longer, and so when the date passed with no message, there was no real immediate reaction. Delays of a few days are kind of common in these kinds of expeditions, so nobody really thought much of it. It was only after the relatives of the travelers demanded a rescue operation did the head of the institute send the first rescue groups, consisting of volunteer students and teachers, on February the 20th. Later, the army and the police forces became involved, with planes and helicopters being ordered to join the rescue operation. On February 26th, the searchers found the abandoned and badly damaged tent on Kolat's cycle. Michal Sharavin, a student who found the, tra- the tent, said, and of course this has been, you know, translated for us because I don't speak Russian, the tent was half torn down and covered with snow. It was empty and all the group's belongings and shoes had been left behind. Interesting, they left their shoes and their belongings behind. In the middle of snow, they left their shoes. Just think on that for a minute. Investigators said the tent had been cut open from the inside, and that skiers had fled in socks or even barefoot a chain of eight or nine set of footprints left by several people who were wearing socks a single shoe or even barefoot could be followed and led down towards the edge of nearby woods on opposite side of the pass roughly a mile northeast but about 550 yards and they were all covered with snow at the forest edge under a large old cedar tree the search party found the remains of a fire along with the first two bodies those of Yuri Kravashenko and Yuri Doroshenko. Both were shoeless and dressed only in their underwear. The branches on the tree were broken up to five meters high, suggesting that the skiers had tried to climb up to look for something, possibly the camp. Forensic tests later confirmed that traces of skin were found embedded in the bark, indicating that the pair had frantically attempted to cl- climb up the tree, snapping off the branches uh, until their hands were a mass of a pulpy flesh the medical examiner recorded that some of the corpses had liver mortis, which is discoloration of the skin where blood had pulled, on the front, not on the side, but on the front. Such marks are always formed on the side of a body that has been pressed against the ground. This indicated that someone must have turned them over after death, but the question is, who? On February 27th, between the cedar tree and the tent, the searchers found Igor Dyatlov, roughly about 328 meters—I'm sorry, yards—from the cedar tree, and Zionata Kolmogorov was about 680 yards from that cedar tree. Six days later, on March the 5th, Rustem Slobodin, who was about 525 yards from the cedar tree, and the three seemed to have died in poses suggesting that they were attempting to return to the tent. A medical examination found no injuries, which might have led to their deaths, and it was concluded that they must have died from hypothermia. Slobodin did have a small crack in his skull, but it was not thought to have been a fatal wound. A legal inquest started immediately after finding the first five bodies, but the remaining four hikers wouldn't be found for another two months. They were finally found on May the 5th, buried under four meters of snow in a ravine roughly 82 yards farther out into the woods from that cedar tree. These four were better dressed than the others, and there were signs that those who had died first had apparently relinquished their clothes to the others. Zolotorov so, was wearing Dubinina's faux fur coat and hat, while Dubenina's foot was wrapped in a piece of Krovoshenko's wool pants. An examination of the four bodies found in May changed the direction of the entire investigation. Three of them had fatal injuries. The body of Thibault Brignol had major skull damage, and both Dubinina and Zolotorov had major chest fractures. According to doctor Boris Vozradini, the force required to, to cause this type of damage would have been incredibly high. In fact, he compared it to the force of a high speed car crash. Notably, the bodies had no external wounds, as if they were crippled by a high level of pressure and Dubenina was found to be missing her tongue. The group clearly realized their threats and did everything that they could to save themselves. They had managed to dig out a den in the snow, they laid it down with branches in an effort to keep themselves warm, but things were about to get even more bizarre bodies were actually found a few feet from their improvised shelter in the deepest part of the ravine on the area only 13 feet from where some of the hikers clothing two sweaters and pants were found and they were found radioactive what also some of the clothes taken from the bodies underneath that cedar tree were placed on the cedar branches but apparently had never been used it was getting weirder and weirder the deaths of the expedition members were attributed to a series of mistakes by Dietlov the leader. On the 1st of February, he began the ascent to the summit at 3 p.m., even though he knew about the difficulty of the terrain. Furthermore, and this is considered his next mistake, he chose a line 500 meters to the left of the planned pass that lies between peak 1079 and peak 880, so the group found themselves on the eastern slope of peak 1079, They used what was left of the daylight to ascend to the summit in strong winds, which are highly typical for this area, and incredibly low temperatures of minus 25 degrees centigrade. Dyedlov found himself in bad conditions for the night, so he decided to pitch his tent on the slope of 1079, so as to start in the morning without adding the distance from the forest, you know, roughly about a kilometer, to the remaining trek of about 10 kilometers to the summit considering the absence of any external injuries to the bodies or signs of a fight, the presence of all the valuables of the group, and also taking into account the conclusion of the medical examinations for the causes of death for these guys, it is concluded that the cause of their demise was overwhelming force, which the tourists were not able to overcome. The sad thing is, is, what force? Nobody seems to know. And the lack of eyewitnesses has inspired a lot of speculation. Soviet investigators simply determined that a compelling natural force had caused the deaths. Access to the area was barred for skiers and other adventurers for three years after the incident. The chronology of the incident remains unclear because of the lack of any survivors. Due to all this mystery and unanswerable questions, many theories have arisen to help put to rest what happened to this group of adventurers, many of which we're going to touch on. And please remember, there is an accepted cause of death for all the hikers, but nothing can be really proven, so we're just guessing. Now we're going to jump into some of the theories. One of the first theories to surface is one that Alexei Rakuten introduced in his book, Diet's Love Pass. Remember, this is 1959, smack dab in the middle of the Cold War, so he postulates that Alexander Zolotorov, Alexander Kolovatov, and Yuri Krovachinko were all KGB agents sent on a mission to uncover a cell of CIA agents. They were to deliver radioactive samples and then take photographs of the Americans. But something went wrong, and the CIA agents killed the group. I know, it sounds absurd now, but in the state of fear and paranoia, that was the only way to spy on the Soviet Union. And Russians weren't stupid either. They repeatedly fooled Westerners by planting radioactive tainted materials from places that had absolutely nothing to do with radioactivity. This coincides with the so-called theory of Western intelligence involvement. According to this theory, two or more of the members of the Dyatlov group were hired by the KGB to deliver fake proof of radioactive tainted clothes. The rest of the group was probably unaware of the real purpose of the journey. Rakuten's version is one which is widely spread now and is quite logical in terms of explanation of the most mysterious issues, you know, the radioactive clothes, the uses of radiation detectors, gray foam on Durashenko's face, the absence of shoes and upper garments, at least one camera that was missing, etc., 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 In fact, it was some strange details about the skiers themselves that gave rise to a Cold War spy story scenario. Say that five times fast, right? Semyon Alexander Zolotorov was a 37-year-old bachelor and instructor at a remote tourist center. He joined the group at the very last minute. He was a veteran with years of combat experience who fought for the NKVD and bore an enigmatic tattoo that until this day has remained untranslated into any known language. Now, archives of the Yuri Polytechnic Institute revealed a remarkable detail about Alexander Koloto- Kolovatov. Before transferring to the Physics Technical Department at UPI, he worked in Moscow as a laboratory assistant in a top-secret scientific facility, an unnamed atomic institute known only as P.O. Box number 3394. And Yuri Krivoshenko worked in a most notorious P.O. Box 4010, the plant Mayak in Chelyabinsk, where a massive nuclear disaster, second in severity only to Chernobyl, occurred in 1957. Interesting. And researcher Alexei Rakitin is certain that this this peculiar fellowship was not gathered by a whim of chance. Behind the biographies of Zelotorov, Kolovatov, and Krivoshenko, the brooding shadow of the KGP is definitely distinct. The true objective of the ski trek, unbeknownst to the other seven members, was to deliver radioactive samples to a group of agents of the CIA and to take pictures of the spies. The latter had been under the guise of ordinary tourists camping at the Mountain of the Dead. The meeting was to have taken place on February the 1st, but the Americans realized the trio was playing a game with them. A conflict ensued, a fight, torture, and the brutal massacre of the entire group. Thrilling as it is, Rakuten's story did not altogether impress the friends of the loves Vladislav Karolin regards it as a red herring. They were tough guys. To scare the daylights out of them, you would need something extraordinary and something astonishing. Truthfully, Ah, I guess in nineteen fifty, nineteen sixties, 1960s, you know, the KGB looming over us and the Cold War still in full swing, this made sense. But our next theory holds a little more water and is a little bit more plausible, but still doesn't necessarily tick all the items off of our list as a full reason. Now, a private investigator, who spoke to former servicemen in the area, said the hikers could have been killed after being mistaken for escaped prisoners from a local gulag prison camp. Or, alternatively, they were killed in a cleanup operation after a series of military exercises. Siberia at the time of the tragedy was still a land of the gulag. Many political prisoners were released, were released from 1953 to 1956, but many criminals were still behind bars. Many small concentration camps were dispersed all over the area. The closest was Ivlog, situated just a few miles from the site of the tragedy. Although there were no escapes reported around this time, It doesn't necessarily mean that it didn't happen. History has shown many examples where prisoners would escape, go into hiding for years, or even decades at a time. They could have easily missed the death of Stalin in 1953 and subsequent amnesty to all political prisoners. Young tourists could have been mistaken for unwanted witnesses and subsequently killed. If you take into consideration many of the political prisoners came straight from the fronts of World War II, it's highly plausible that these people knew how to kill and were very open to the idea of, you know, rubbing out somebody that saw something they shouldn't. Furthermore, Yuri Yudin discovered a piece of clothing that did not belong to any of the members of the group. This obmotki is a wide piece of clothing that are wrapped around feet or legs to keep them warm. They have a distinct shape and made from a particular material. They were widely used among the soldiers in the 1940s and later among the prisoners of Stalin's concentration camps. Nobody knows how it got there, and nobody knows how it disappeared from an evidence room. But it did arrive there, and it did disappear. Nobody knows why. Since there were no reported prison breakouts from the local Ivdelsky Corrective Labor Colony, the next suspects were the indigenous Manzi people that live in the Kanti Mansia, an autonomous district within the Tuyman region in Russia. Whew, yeah, that was definitely at least two or three shots. At the second week of the investigation, the prevalent theory was that Mansi hunters, who often camped in Mount Kolatsakhl, committed the crime on the night of, of the February 1st. The information that we have on the Dyatlov case can be mostly attributed to the work of St. Petersburg investigator Yeah, I'm going to butcher this one, so you might as well go ahead and take two shots now. Evgeny Vladimirovich Bayanov. Whew, yeah, that was definitely two drinks. Who made the native Manzi people his strongest candidate to be the perpetrator of this crime. He states that there was Manzi chum northeast from where Dyatlov group pitched their tent on the night of January the 30th. A trail leading to the Chum was passing 200 feet from where the Diet Left group camped, so they definitely had the opportunity. The Manzi, they knew the area and definitely had the skills to hide their ski tracks and hunt the hikers into the woods. The MO is so unusual that it can be easily attributed to somebody very used to hunting down people or hunting down animals and killing them. The Manzi are a very proud and secluded people. They consider these mountains their hunting grounds. If the Manzi told them that they should not have been there, and the hikers took it the wrong way, it's very easy that a verbal confrontation, a verbal confrontation could have easily escalated. Ethnographers, know of Manzi holy places scattered across the northern Urals, mysterious stones, and pagan prayer houses. In general, the mysticism and unknown customs made Soviet prosecutors suspicious and fueled their desires to blame the crime on the Manzi. It's no surprise the first and only coherent hypothesis in the course of this formal investigation is the involvement of Manzi hunters in the tourist deaths. Rumors were circulating of a woman geologist that had been tied and thrown in the lake in the 1930s. The motive was desecration of Monzi shrines. Now, we're not sure if this is fiction or if it actually happened, because there's actually no documentation to even back up the story. It's just a story. And there are a number of inconsistencies in this theory, and we're going to take a little break and come back to those. So meet me back here after the break. And welcome back, my heathens. You're still listening to Dark Enigma. And we left off our story where we were talking about the local native people, the Monzi people. And we were talking about the inconsistency in the theory that they committed this atrocity. Um, so even if the story about the geologists were true, there hadn't actually been a crime committed in the area for decades. Quote from a witness report by Pavel Makaterov, a Manzi native, said, Everyone goes to this mountain, Russian men and women, both Manzi and non-Manzi. There's no special prohibition to hike the mountain. So there really wasn't any belief that the mountain was sacred to the Manzi people. From the interrogation reports on the religion hypothesis, it's clear there were no sacred places in the surroundings of the Kolot Cycle. This theory was based on misinformation where the ritual objects and places significant for the Manzi were, a complete lack of understanding of how the Manzi practiced their religion, and a desire to have a politically correct hypothesis in an atheist society. It would be very convenient to have yet another case showing how religion can affect your mind and what crimes can be done in the name of a false idol and or cause. Hikers' property was also not stolen after they were chased down the mountain. Life in Siberia is harsh. The Monzi could easily make the tent and footsteps disappear, never to be found, and loot the stuff that was inside, you know, the boots, the clothes, the food, alcohol, money, pens, notebooks, all of those things. Some of these things their kids never had and had never seen. Even if the cameras and flashlights were not of a particular interest because they didn't know where to buy film and batteries, the alcohol they knew very well. In fact, alcohol was considered a better currency than money was among the tribes. The money was found in the tent with 1,685 ruble plus 3,10 ruble on Rustem Slobodin alone. 2,000 ruble was an impressive sum, not just for the indigenous Monsi. This was the budget for the entire trip. For three weeks, the group property remained untouched in the ruins of their tent. How does that happen? However, this contradiction was not a problem for the investigators, at least not in the first stage of the investigation. The temptation to hang the deaths of tourists on the local Monzi was far too great. Several young Monzi hunters were arrested in March of 1959 and interrogated. It's hard to say what would have been the fate of these peoples, because the ability of the Soviet machine of justice was to produce the necessary evidence and confirmed by the entire history of its existence, but the investigation in the second half of March just took a surprising turn after that. And the next theory that I'm, we're, we're going to talk about is seriously going to expand your mind. Well, maybe not. Believe it or not, there is a theory that is involving some magic mushrooms. That's right, people. <laughs> um, native to the area is a mushroom called the fly agaric, also known as Amanita muscaria. Yeah, I know you said, you, you heard that there, muscal, that's right. They are very toxic, but they become less lethal when they are dried out. Conveniently, they do grow most commonly under pine trees because the spores travel exclusively on pine seeds. So a shaman or magic person would often hang them on lower branches of a pine tree that they were growing under in order to dry them out before taking them back to their village. As an alternative, he would put them in a sock and hang them over his fire to dry them out as well. Another way to remove the fatal toxins from the shrooms was to feed them to reindeer, who would, you know, basically get high off of them and then pee, and having their digestive system filter it out, most of those toxins made their urine safe for humans to drink, and I'm just going to stop right there and go ew. I am all about getting high, but I'm not drinking reindeer pee to do it. Just saying. Anyways, so it made it safe for the humans to drink and get a safer high that way. Man, the things we will do for a high, right? (laughs) Reindeer happen to love the fly agarics, and they eat them whenever they see them, so a good supply of the magic pee was usually ready and waiting all winter. In fact, the reindeer liked fly so much that they would eat any snow where a, hu- where a human had drank the shroom-laced urine to relieve themselves, and thus the cycle of life would continue. Bet you didn't think that this was going to morph from magic mushrooms to magic reindeer pee, did ya? <laughs> Stay with me, people, because it gets better. When the shamans go out to gather the mushrooms, they usually wear a red outfit with either white trim or white dots, in honor of the mushroom's colors. And because of that time of year, the whole region was usually covered with deep snow. He, like everyone else, wore tall boots of reindeer skin that would by then be blackened from exposure. And he'd gather the tree-dried fly agarics and some reindeer urine in a large sack and return home to his yurt, where some of the higher ups of the village would have gathered to join in the solstice ceremony. So I don't know if any of you are picturing this, but old man, probably with a white beard, wearing a red outfit with white trim, and carrying around a sack full of magic pea and magic shrooms. Yeah, it sounds like Santa to me. Yeah, this one's definitely legit. I'm I'm voting for this one. <laughs> I'm kidding. Moving on. <laughs> it was santa claus don't you know no not really all right let's move on svetlana os in her book don't go there believes that conti hunters who had taken a Garic fly to get themselves in a killing mood accidentally killed rustum Slobodon with a dynamic head kick and inflicted the chest injuries by jumping or bouncing on the chests of dershenko dubanina and zolotorov so basically they got high off the mushrooms and turned into ninjas Svetlana claims they wanted to avoid shooting, so as to foil investigators, which is why they sanitized the tent area, covering their footprints with snow and making the cuts themselves. Thereafter, forcing the tourists to discard clothing and footwear, which is why Dyatlov's jacket and flashlight were found outside the tent. Yeah, uh, I'm not sure if I'm buying this one because, you know hunters that take mushrooms to get in the killing mood that doesn't sound very safe to me because what if they can't tell the difference between animals and people yeah okay um (laughs) anyway she interprets frame number 17 from the pictures that were recovered um as a hunter who was following the group and was surprised when they held quietly till the stalker briefly emerged and the photo was taken before the figure could retreat back into the woods I don't know. Frame number 17 has a lot of mystery to it. You can see the frame or the shape of what appears to be a person. A very large person. I'm going to say that a lot of people say frame number 17 is a yeti. Which I have more belief in than I do the magic mushroom ninja thing. Anyways. (laughs) Anyways. This would also explain why they decided to pitch the, t- the, tr- the, t- the tent away from the tree line. Yeah, I've had a little too much vodka, can you tell? Zolotorov and Tubu were almost fully clothed and wearing some kind of footwear. Zolotorov was found with a camera around his neck. They speculate that the two might have gone outside the tent to relieve themselves, and Zolotorov took his camera because something interesting was going on. I'm thinking this was the first incident of somebody trying to send dick pics, but I could be wrong remaining questions based on this theory are did Conti Hunter stalk them and did the shaman interpret the unusual lights in the sky if there were lights as permission from the spirits to uphold the tradition that the mountain was sacred and forbidden to strangers well we've already heard from Amanzi Hunter who said that they're not a sacred mountain and it wasn't forbidden to strangers so that goes out the, the window did the group cut slits in the tent to surveil where their stalkers might be now that's a possibility the case of the Conti hunters made by Svetlana Oss ends with a possible clue regarding a rifle that somebody bought from a native who implied while drinking that he witnessed the entire incident. The funny thing is, is has found this witness and nobody's interviewed him, but okay. The possibility is that the group may have ingested the mushrooms, either intentionally or unintentionally, and suffered the delirium and sweating with acute doses. Now, this would account for what appears to be the very bizarre behavior from the group on that final night. Now, the next theory is a little bit easier for us to digest. I know, what a pun, right? And for the most part, I think is the leading theory on what may have happened. Danger of avalanche in the region is incredibly common, but the Kolatsako Mountain is not very tall and it's certainly not very steep. Furthermore, the opponents of this theory suggest that the tourists' own diaries report a fairly thin snow cover. Now, these facts alone don't exclude the possibility of a small avalanche. Simply put, a portion of the upper layer of snow could simply shift and roll and take the tourist with it as a slab of snow. Now, this could this could damage the tent and create havoc among tourists who were suddenly trapped underneath several feet of snow. It would certainly explain why the tent was cut from the inside, and further retreat would be necessary if the tourists were worried a second avalanche would strike. According to the supporters of this theory, the group t- tried to make their way back to the Ispia River, and I'm just going to say seriously, after the reindeer pee-, pee, how much funny is it that's Ispia, Right and instead make a fatal mistake by descending into the valley of the Lozva River. After four weeks, the snow that was rushed down the slope of the mountain would simply blow off under the strong winds that are common in the region, effectively erasing all signs of an avalanche. Now, admittedly, this theory has its downfalls too. From what we can tell from the naked footprints left by the group, everyone seemed to descend with relative ease, It's highly unlikely that three people with broken ribs and chest injuries would have been transportable at all. And here we see several badly damaged men and women walk without problems or even help from any of the other members of the group. Secondly, these men and women were experienced and well-trained. They knew a chance of freezing to death was more likely than getting killed by an avalanche. Although the removal of the damaged tent from an exposed mountainside was out of the question, they had to retrieve all their warm clothes. And finally, if you see on the pictures from February first and february twenty sixth you can see part of the gear kept its vertical position on the slope weeks after the tragedy even happened. Furthermore, the entrance of the tent is clearly elevated, only the middle portion collapsed, possibly due to a hasty escape or weight of snow simply collecting on the middle of the tent. Now, occasionally, some of the conspiracy theorists and you know I love my you know I love my crazy people. They like to claim that a UFO scared the group away, because after all, it's always aliens. Although seemingly incredible, this claim might actually have some basis to it. About the same time, Soviet armed forces did launch several rockets from Bakunor base and then although the, the, although the military claimed that the rockets landed in the North Ural Mountains, several geologists, roughly 70 kilometers from the mountains, saw some glowing and pulsating orbits flying in the direction of the kolat on the day of the tragedy, which was the evening of February the 1st. So it's possible it was a rocket off course. Lev Ivanov, a man who was in charge of the investigation at the Dytlov Pass, lived a very long life in the early 1990s in an interview to a local journalist he made a statement that during his investigation he and E.P. Maslanikov yeah we're like up to like 20 shots at this point you know so just grab the bottle at this point because you should be drunk just like me um well they both noticed that the pines in the forest were burned at the top which is weird he also claims that A.P. Kirilenko, a member of the Soviet Congress, along with his advisor A.F. Ashtokin, forced Ivanov to take out any reference to the unknown flying objects or other strange phenomena. This included pictures of flying spheres drawn by the Monzi hunters and other testimonies. It is true that, th- that the Soviet Union experienced a boom of interest on everything unknown. Skeptics might also add that Ivanov gave this interview to make a little bit of money, because, you know, that's what we all do. However, we have to mention that Kirilenko became obsessed with the UFO theme. Starting in the early 60s, he filed several requests to gain access to the KGB archives. We don't know what was found in the documents, but it is undeniably strange that a political figure in the USSR paid such interest in this subject. The UFO part was not investigated by the official sciences, so it's deemed as a pseudo-religious phenomenon atheist Soviet Union obviously prohibited any interest in the subject, especially among members of the highest legislative body in the country. Surprisingly, one of the most extraordinary and astonishing versions came from none other than Lev Ivanov himself. In 1990, the retired prosecutor published an article, The Enigma of the Fireballs where he admitted that in spring of 1959, under the pressure of Kirilenko and his deputy, Yeshtokin, he withdrew various key materials from the case that indicated the true cause of the accident, fireballs or a UFO. He stated, and again, this has been translated because I don't speak Russian. That's right, go get Musenskow. Well. When E.P. Maslinikov and I examined the scene in May, we found that some young pine trees at the edge of the forest had burn marks, but those marks did not have a concentric form or some other pattern. There was no epicenter. This once again confirmed that heated beams of a strong but completely unknown, at least to us, energy, were directing their firepower toward specific objects, in this case, people, acting selectively. End quote. It is worth noting that later on, Kirilenko professed a lively interest in the UFO theory, and received memos about sightings of unidentified objects from the chairman of the KGB, Andropov. As part of of the technological theories, there have been suggestions that an infrasound might have been responsible for sudden, unpleasant feelings among the tourists. New research into rare weather phenomena has suggested that a perfect storm could have struck the campers in the night, panicking them so much that they would have fled the tent and fallen victim to the brutal cold before they came to their senses. Donnie Aishar, who spent five years researching the incident and undertook the dangerous trek himself, believes that a wind phenomena called a Carmen Vortex Street could have produced a terrifying, powerful sound which is proven to induce irrational fear in humans. Due to the unique typography of Dead Mountain, which is a perfect dome shape, the fierce winds that blow through the pass could have been warped as they struck the blunt surface. The wind, which was blowing in a straight line, would be twisted into a series of small but powerful tornadoes, which would tear down either side of the pass. These tornadoes, spinning fast enough to tear the roofs off buildings, would have created a deafening noise, even if they missed the tents, as Iker's theory suggested. But under certain circumstances, they could also produce a more subtle and terrifying phenomena known as infrasound. The opposite of ultrasound, infrasound is a type of vibration in the air which has a frequency so low that it cannot be picked up by the human ear, but a succession of studies has shown that it can have marked effects on the human body, including loss of sleep, shortness of breath, and extreme dread. Iker, backed, backed by scientists at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration in the U.S., believes that the combination of the effects on infrasound, the deafening noise of tornadoes, and the claustrophobic pitch-black tent could unseat even the most steady-minded adventurer. Now, though the science sounds incredible, Iker believes it is the only logical explanation for the situation in which the bodies were found. Although Dead Mountain is so remote and inaccessible that the weather phenomena cannot be directly observed there in the winter, it has been observed in similarly shaped locations, including the Rock of Gibraltar and an array of other peaks. In the right conditions, a flow of wind can be directed in such a way that it creates a vortex. These vortices are created in sequences by the moving air and travel away in a fan shape. With sufficiently high winds and the correct angles, these vortices of wind could form powerful tornadoes with the potential to emit large amounts of infrasound as well as cause damage to themselves. I'm sorry, by themselves. Woo, to themselves. I need another vodka. Iker's theory supposes that the Dyatlov hiker's tent was directly downwind from the peak of the mountain, and far enough away that the whirling winds themselves did not strike the tent, but they would have been close enough for the effects to be felt and heard. Infrasound, which are vibrations in the air which are far too low for us to hear, was first observed in the 1960s. The waves, defined as anything below human hearing range of 20 hertz, the upper range is about 20,000, can be made by man made objects as well as natural phenomena. Vladimir Gavro, and yeah, he's a French scientist, so now I got Russian and French. Seriously, I need more vodka. Hold that thought. Okay, so we got Vladimir, this French scientist. He first noticed the effect of infrasound on his body thanks to a badly designed fan. When his lab assistants began suffering nausea for no obvious reason, he discovered that the discomfort was caused by the motor of a large fan, which was emitting the sound waves. A 2003 study in the UK found that a fifth of people exposed to infrasound reported feeling anxious, scared, or unable to breathe properly. Another theory holds that the waves are linked to ghost sightings. Oh, yay, now we got aliens and ghosts. Ugh, this just keeps getting better and better. Iker's hypothesis for the Dietloff Pass holds that the whirling tornadoes would have been able to produce infrasound in sufficiently high levels to induce panic in the slumbering hikers, after which the Siberian weather did the rest of the job now there's other theories such as ball lightning which is an unexplained atmospheric electrical phenomenon Um, it's usually most of you guys know what ball lightning is it's just like regular lightning but it's in ball shape now of course they think that because there was no visible damage that it could have been a combination of infrasound tornadoes and ball lightning it seems like that's a perfect storm you have to have three different things happening Now, these are just a few of the theories. Some blame the spirits, other blame the paradoxical undressing that led to hypothermia. All these theories ignore the fact that only two bodies showed signs of undressing after they left the tent. And it was the first two bodies found under the cedar tree. Their clothes were removed after they died. We can assume the bodies were beginning to show the first sign of rigor mortis or stiffness after death. The clothes of dead victims were cut off and later found near the bodies in the den. This proves that people were aware of the danger of hypothermia and they were doing everything that they could to save themselves. Why did they leave the tent with all the clothes and boots inside is still a mystery. Many theories surfaced in the past decades. Few of them, however, explain a wide range of physical injuries that the group experienced. Unfortunately, these were not the last victims of the Kolat Cycle. From 1960 to 61, several airplane crashes took away lives of nine pilots and geologists who were sent there. For a time, flights were totally canceled in the region. Among the more recent victims of the mountain was a crash of MI-8 in 2009. Pilots ignoring a long-standing unofficial no-fly zone. Fortunately, they survived the crash, but they couldn't explain why their helicopter went down so quickly and without any warning at all. Tourists today repeat the track of the Diet Love Group, but none of the group ever contained nine people. In the early 2000s, a group of nine tourists, under supervision of a rescue crew, repeated the same descent down the slope of Coilat Cycle. Despite snow cover and nighttime, none of the participants got any significant bruises or cuts. Those who observed the students did not re- report any difficulty in locating members on the mountainside. None of the group members were lost, and vocal and eye contact was, was constant between group members at all times. And this only adds to the mystery of what really happened on the mountain that day. The case of Dietloff Path remains open. And it probably won't be answered anytime soon, unless, you know, the mothership comes down and tells us that, hey guys, sorry, it was us, we were trying to do an anal probe and we screwed up. I don't think that happens. As for me, well, I, I'm leaning towards the ball lightning and the tornado. Or, yeah, it's aliens. Because, you know, it's always aliens. <laughs> and with that, we've come to the end of our very first episode. And we're going to thank you for joining us today. We hope you take the time to reach out to us and share your thoughts on this episode and any theory of what you have that might have happened. You can reach the show at darkenigmapodcast at gmail.com. And if you have any suggestions for future shows or you just want to tell us what you think, don't hesitate to drop us a line. We'd love to hear from you. And on that note, That's all the time we have for today. So, thank you for joining us on Renegade Talk Radio. And don't forget to tune in next time. Keep it spooky, people. We don't sugarcoat shit. Uh. This is Renegade Talk Radio. Renegade Talk Radio.